Thank you, Nina Simone. I'm feeling a little blue, so I need you to say, here comes the sun, and that's your goal, to get everybody to wake up and feel better. So this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. You're a national movement building show on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. Also, would love you to check out the website that Chani Martinez, Akili Walker, and myself produce called VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. It's a beautiful website. And, you know, if you're up in the middle of the night, you can download one, two, or three shows and just enjoy it. There's some really great shows and a lot of work goes into it, and even afterwards, at times, it's been Keanu Williams, and now it's Akili Walker. We even edit the show to take out some of the arms and get the sound quality just perfect, and a lot of work goes into it. If you like the show, you might want to really go back and listen to the song. I mean, I'm really interested, as we'll talk about today, kind of the fight against fascism in the United States and Germany, and I'm going to be reading again from one of my articles that hasn't yet been published. It's called The Ghosts, Dreams, Bones, and Lives of the Oppressed Peoples Must Shape the Nightmares and Hopes of Revolutionaries in the Oppressor Nations. It's the author's introduction to Road for Revolutionaries, the 16 Qualities of the Transformative Organizer in the German edition. Now, my book is called Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of a Successful Organizer. But Violetta Bach and Michael Helt took over a year and translated my book, Playbook for Progressives, into German. It's about fascism, always, anti-fascism. And I realized so much of my life, since I'm a Jew and my family was ferociously anti-fascist, And my family was refugees, not immigrants. They fled Russia in the early 1900s before the Russian Revolution. And they went to England and then to Brooklyn, basically Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And my grandmother was a garment worker and my father was a union organizer. My mother was a very fierce anti-fascist. So I grew up on that. I wrote a book called Playbook for Progressives, and all of a sudden some people from Germany call and say, hey, I don't know how, we got your book, and we'd love to make a German edition. Well, you know, it's sort of a funny thing. It's like saying to a black person, we'd like to make the white edition of Black Reconstruction in America. I'm not sure we want a white edition, and I'm not sure we want a German edition. But then, of course, I realized, of course we do, and... I am ferociously anti-U.S. I don't have loyalty to the United States. I was put in prison for a year and a half for my disloyalty to U.S. imperialism. And I have to realize there's great, great people in Germany, including many who are not Germans, Africans, 
which we'll talk about, and Kurds and Turks who live in Germany but are not Germans. So another thing I want to talk about, why have I been reading lately? I've been writing, I've been writing a lot, so I've been reading a lot. But I'm not sure in terms of voices in my present mindset that I'm interested in a kind of a chatty show and interviewing people and what are you doing and voices on front lines. I'm really thinking that I want to talk about the kind of very big picture questions that I'm trying to grapple with. And I don't want a guest to either have to say things I don't really want to say or talk about work that I'm not exactly in agreement with. You could say at this point, you know, it's not forever, but maybe for the next three or four or five shows, we'll continue to do what we call, you know, popular propaganda, which is reading stories and reading articles about history and maybe make it like into a history show for a while. So I do want people to call in around 345 at 818-985-5735. But I want you to call in responding to my article because I'd love to have people that are doing anti-fascist work, including Michael Novick, who's done some really great work. If you're listening, Michael, you'd be cool to come on because you've already been doing some great anti-racist, anti-fascist work. So Violetta and Michael asked me, if they could publish the book, of course, it was amazing. They're just two grassroots organizers, by the way. They had no money. They just did it in their spare time, which is terrific. And I wanted to write this long essay because my basic premise, which I keep saying more and more clear, is I don't think the United States ever was a so-called bourgeois democracy. I think the United States always has been fundamentally a fascist state. I say that carefully, not rhetorically. And that any group of people that basically enslave Africans and steal all the lands of the indigenous people and wipe out 90 to 95 million indigenous people, it never was anything but a white fascist settler state. And the illusions that even some of us have, not even just all white people, but black, Latino, Asian Pacific Island, even indigenous, that we're trying to make this American democracy work better... I'm just not there. I'm just not there. I think for my next 20 years, I'm just going to be increasingly anti-fascist as well as anti-imperialist. So when I was given this chance to write this introduction, I did a lot of study. I did a lot of thinking. And I'm trying to make the link between anti-fascist and anti-imperialist in Germany and the same in the United States. So with that, and obviously with as I keep saying, thank God for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I mean it with all my heart. Thank God they got 80, 81 million votes, and Trump only got 74 million votes. But Trump is organized. The Proud Boys are organized. This anti-fascist work is not ending. And no, I do not have confidence that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can or want to lead a frontal attack on the fascists. I also think they're doing some very good things, and they are worried, and they are making some moves. But I'm going to focus on my moves, so I'm going to start reading from the introduction to Playbook for Progressives, German edition, a revolutionary history project. In 1848, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto, there's a specter haunting Europe, the specter of communism. But in fact, while the European social democratic movement challenged the capitalism of its own nation states, it did not challenge European imperialism and often was a party to it. It took V.I. Lenin in both what is to be done and imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, to challenge the reactionary nature of trade unionism and to theorize the world-class struggle as between oppressor and oppressed nations, Thus, workers and oppressed people unite, not Marx's workers of the world unite. Lenin observed that any so-called socialist in the oppressor nations, oppressor meaning United States, Germany, France, Italy, Portugal, all the European countries that had any colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, any of those socialists in the oppressor nations who did not fight for the right of self-determination secession of the people and nations of the colonies 
was, quote, a reactionary and a scoundrel. Lenin called it like it is. Consider that 1950, 102 years after the Manifesto, Aimé César, the brilliant Martinique intellectual and father of negritude, proclaimed, Europe is indefensible. Clearly, the European Socialist Project had failed to liberate or even support the liberation of the colonies. So in other writings, they say there's a specter haunting the world, and that specter is Europe and the United States. So what role did German socialists play from 1848, when Germany, France, England, Spain, and Portugal were already deep into genocidal conquest? Where were they during the West African genocide of the early 1900s? What were they doing supporting their own bourgeoisie in the bloody imperialist World War I that led to the reconquest of the colonies and the killing of 18 million people? The short answer is they were on the side of their own countries. They were on the side of their own imperialism. The working class in the United States has never fought as a working class against imperialism. It's, it's a pro imperialist working class. The working class in Europe has always been a pro-imperialist working class, not neutral. So how do you organize people that already support the murder of Algerians, the murder of Africans, the murder of Vietnamese, the murder of Cubans? That's what we got to figure out. In my own exploration of the theme of imperialist genocide and revolutionary strategy, I, of course, would urge my German readers to go to the deepest interrogation of the Shoah, the Holocaust. The German mass murders of the Jews, communists, and gypsies. To dig deeper and deeper, both backward and forward in time, among many books I urge you to read are Raoul Hilberg's The Destruction of the European Jews, a brilliant monograph that documents in terrifying specificity how many Germans were needed to police the streets, how many Germans to round up the Jews? How many Germans to take them to the camps, light the ovens, make their clothes, build the trains that took them to their death, remove the gold from their teeth, and sell them back on the market? In a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners, but even more in this book, The Destruction of the European Jews. He makes charts, graphs. It's so coldly factual how many people in Germany made the trains that the Jews were put into to take them to the camps? How many people built the camps? How many people took out the gold, took the gold back to the Führer? How many people were involved in chasing the Jews? How many people were involved in hiding the Jews? Thank God, a few. And how many people were spying to see if anybody was hiding the Jews, the vast majority? I also urge you to read The Kaiser's Holocaust, Germany's Forgotten Genocide, by David Olasoga and Kaspar Eriksson. His brilliant exposure of German barbarism details the crimes of Otto von Bismarck's 1884 Conference of Berlin. This is another, this stuff is so hard to read, by the way. I just, it's just hard to read, but I read it every day. There, the leaders of European and U.S. Christian capitalism divided Africa into spheres of influence and conquest. This quote, by the end of 1884, almost one million square miles of Africa had been brought under nominal control of Germany. In addition, Germany had secured possessions in Samoa and New Guinea. What the hell, Germany? How does Germany get to own Samoa, New Guinea? It's just despicable that the United States and Germany, they just sit there and they make a map of the world. Well, you take Samoa, I'll take Haiti. No, you have Haiti, I'll take Brazil. No, the Portuguese have Brazil. And all the subject people, the oppressed people, are trying to plot their own liberation. The African empire over which Germany claimed protection was over five times the size of the Reich itself. 14 million Africans had, in theory at least, become colonial subjects of Germany, although most none of them had any idea the seismic event had even taken place. 
I don't know, lately, you know, I write a lot, I read a lot. I mean, how do you not spend time with that sentence? Germany, pathetic, racist Germany, sits down at a conference called the Berlin, and Otto von Bismarck cuts a deal with everybody and says, I'm going to take part of Africa, and I'm going to claim 14 million people and 1 million square miles. And those people were just sitting there waiting without knowing it, that they're about to be conquered. In 1885, Heinrich Ernest Goring was sent to Southwest Africa as the first emissary of Germany. His son, Hermann Goring, later would become a leader of the next German genocide, a biology of barbarism in the German psyche and soul. The story of how at first a few German, quote, settlers established a foothold and within decades carry out mass murder against the Nama and an adult people is terrifying to read. The authors also tell the story of Hendrik Wittbury, one of the leaders of the Nama people, whose historical contribution is not just his ability to resist imperialism through military and diplomatic means, but his written record of colonialism and colonial violence through African eyes. The authors expose the moral depravity, pretensions, and savagery of the Germans in Africa who ruled through rifles, muskets, horses, Christianity, legal trickery, fraudulent mutual protection treaties, divide-and-conquer tactics, relentless aggressive pressure, alcohol, and disease. They explain how the Germans were among the most enthusiastic advocates of social Darwinism, to explain that black Africans were an inferior and doomed race, and the future of Africa was for white settlement, with Africans facing servitude at best and extinction as the final solution. It's hard to understand that when the first Christian Spanish came to the Americas, they didn't even come to cut a deal with the indigenous people. They didn't come to exploit them. They saw them as in the way of a white European conquest of another land, and the people were simply to be murdered, to be slaughtered. The whole concept that the Germans were saying that all the Africans in Africa were, I didn't want to say what they said about them, to warrant basically turning Africa into a white European continent. I don't know, does any of this terrify you? Make you want to get involved with the Strategy Center? Info at the Strategy Center, because everything, even when I'm not in the Strategy Center right now, I'm in Southwest Africa, but it does get involved is info at the Strategy Center. Do you want to do something with us to fight imperialism and fascism today? But going back... They explain how the Germans were among the most enthusiast advocates of social Darwinism again. In 1904, as the German public felt that German colonialism was moving at too slow a pace, stop. In 1904, the German working class that Karl Marx said is the vanguard of the proletariat was mainly concerned that Germany wasn't building up as many colonies as France Germany wasn't exploiting the Africans and super-exploiting them enough, wasn't bringing enough super-profits back to Germany like the French, the Americans, the United States, the Portuguese, Dutch. So check this out. The German public was upset that German colonials were moving at too slow a pace, so the Kaiser sent General Adrian Dietrich Lothar von Trotha to accentuate the conquest. Von Trosa explained, please listen to this quote, my policy is to apply this force by terrorism and cruelty. I shall destroy the rebellious tribes by shedding rivers of blood and money. Only then will it be possible to sow the seeds of something new that will endure. It seems horrible in listening to it in English, let alone German, but it's not very far away. I'm sorry for what the United States is doing all over the world today and what it did in Vietnam and what it did throughout its history. 
What followed was a systematic massacre of the 50,000 Arero people, an area just 30 miles long and two miles wide. But when 6,000 massively armed Germans could not completely murder everyone, they forced them into a long desert to die of starvation and thirst. The German official history declared this as a profound success. Quote, the hasty retreat of the Herero to the southeast into the waterless Omaheke would seal his fate. The environment of his country was to bring about his extermination in a way that no German weapon, even in its most bloody battle, ever could. Their death rattle and furious cry of insanity echoed in the exalted silence of eternity. The Herero indictment had come to an end, and they had ceased to exist as an independent people. So the Germans are exalting, watching these people lose their minds as they force them into a desert where they die of starvation and of dehydration. Welcome to the U.S. soldiers that boasted of how many people they could kill, brought in body counts, would stack up Vietnamese civilians, women, children, and men, literally in stacks, and do a so-called body count. And each group was supposed to win the battle of the body count. It's the moral responsibility of Germans and people all over the world, says Eric Mann, to make sure that the German genocide in Africa is not lost in the so-called exalted silence of eternity, and to ensure that the ghosts, dreams, bones, and lives of the oppressed people must shape the nightmares and hopes of revolutionaries in the oppressor nations. So this idea, this is my title, of the ghosts, those people must live. The dreams, those people's dreams must live. Bones, those bones must be seen, and that's why every time they try to build some kind of a economic project, and they say, what's the problem with these indigenous people? It's just some graveyards. <sighs> because the graveyard is the bones. The bones are the history. The bones are often the people that you murdered. So if you murdered them, at least keep their bones in the ground and don't excavate them for your next imperialist project. I want them to shape your nightmares, says Eric Mann, and your hopes of revolutionaries in the oppressor nation. That starts with me. I'm a pretty strange person, but I read, force myself to read about genocide after genocide because that's what I think my country carries out every day. You have to have a strong stomach for this. And just in case I don't get to it in the text, I remember I was in Germany and my wife Leanne and I went to Germany at the invitation of the Franz Mehring Institute, which is amazing. And we were out with some people, and there were kind of these, of course, they were white, as we, but different, these German, and one woman was Scandinavian, and they were kind of these radical, you know, thought they were politically radical, and the young woman said, why are they always trying to keep us responsible for things that we didn't do? This has happened a hundred years ago. Why are we still talking about this? Can you imagine that? I'm sitting there as a Jew going, uh, yeah, because I didn't forget. Uh, it's 1940. I was born in 1942. My dad was fighting the fascists in World War II. My people were killed in the 30s and 40s and 50s. You know, my people were killed in, in Russia. And you want to forget it, let alone what you did in Africa. So... This is actually a good book. You know, don't worry. I mean, I am saying that there's a few people in Germany who want to hear this, who are excited about this work, who are saying, yeah, Eric, this is exactly because we have the rise of fascism in Germany. We have the rise of fascism in every European country. And God knows we've had this close to a fascist seizure of power in the United States. But please don't read me stories about genocide. I want to have a more pleasant day. I encourage comrades in Germany to study the formation of the German peoples, the ideological and political formation of the German nation-state and its predecessors, and also to study Germans' role in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, for instance, Argentina, as a home for Nazis, 
as another image that comes to mind, as well as Germany's role today in subjugating less powerful economic nations in the EU, such as Greece. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. D'Angelo Jones, thank God he's here. Let's play some music. And so I got to face the final curtain. Friends, I'll say it clear. And state my case, of which I'm certain. I believe a life. All right, I don't want you to think I'm leaving, even if you wanted me to. That's Nina Simone. I was just taking a second to clear your brain and mine. So I'm urging people in Germany to study and appreciate the anti-fascist, anti-imperialist left in Germany. I look to the work of Rosa Luxemburg and the anti-colonial communists and Spartacists. I would study if there were German anti-imperialists who opposed German settlements in Africa, not of a racist isolationist ideology, out of a true solidarity with an appreciation of the African peoples. I know during the 1960s there were strong anti-U.S. and NATO demonstrations in Germany against the war in Vietnam. I also knew that Rudi Dutschke and other student radicals challenged the West, offered solidarity with the nations of the Third World. I've been told by German comrades that there was a movement in which radical German students challenged their parents and families to tell where they were and what they did during the show and to expose the Nazi roots of many of the liberals of that time. But the Germans today even know of that history and who will teach them. My point is that both in the United States and Germany, all the work that we did in the 60s and 70s, in my opinion, has just been virtually obliterated, trivialized, reconstructed, people just grabbing one thing or another out of what we did and claiming they are learning from it when they just pick some concept to justify what they're doing. Great work was done in Germany in the 60s. Great work was done in France against the French occupation of Algeria. I'm urging that we need much more internationalism today. I think a careful and appreciation study of the entire history of the German Democratic Republic is in order. Given its true encirclement by capitalist forces and the quick rehabilitation of many former Nazis by the U.S. and West Germany, and the GDR's exemplary work in solidarity with the liberation movements in Africa, I think that any, quote, new revolutionary politics in Germany must have some solidarity with the GDR experiment. That is to say, I am a big supporter of East Germany against West Germany. In Alan Weider's inspiring book, Ruth First and Joe Slovo in the Battle Against Apartheid, there are countless stories of African National Congress and South African Communist Party members going to East Germany and the Soviet Union to be trained in armed struggle and given weapons to be smuggled back to the African resistance movement. By contrast, the West German government was very close to the racist apartheid regime. Many Germans lived in the South African white settler state Many German companies like Siemens and Mercedes-Benz were key beneficiaries and supporters of the racist government. There are also reports of West German intelligence agency and the CIA working with the apartheid government to provide false evidence in the trial of Nelson Mandela and other ANC militants who stood up to racism. So check that out. Nelson Mandela is on trial, along with, I have to get the number, but at least 15 other South African communists for armed struggle, and the U.S. CIA and the Germans after World War II are providing false information to convict the African National Congress. Now, I have some very good comrades in Germany who are now inviting me to be part of a presentation about my book, and one of the comrades, my new friend, is a professor at Cal State Northridge who is living in Germany at the time but taking my course at Northridge, which is a whole other story. But the point is, the harshness with which I talk about Germany and the United States is to assume there are people in the United States who agree with this, assume there are especially black people but Latinx and indigenous. 
And yeah, Jews and other white people will say, you're not being too harsh. I mean, this is what the United States did. Why would I identify with these atrocities? But also, you keep putting these atrocities in my face because you're trying to get me to get beyond fighting for Medicare for all and beyond fighting for Social Security and food stamps to fight to get rid of the 800 U.S. military bases all over the world, to cut off aid to Israel in its present genocide against the Palestinian people. So I use history to fuel my own fire, but also to give me some hope in a certain strange way about all these people who fought. Every one of them knew what they were doing as they were being marched to their death. In some way, they lived through me. I mean, if only for me, they lived through me. That I care about them, that I read about them, that I try to bring them to you on my radio show. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. This is Eric Mann. And you're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. If there's any Africans who have ever lived in Germany, any Turks or Kurds, if there's anyone listening who's been in the German resistance movement against fascism, my new and wonderful friend, Victor Grossman, he was on our show, and we had a one hour with him. And he is, in his 90s, still fighting against German fascism, Victor Grossman. And it's a great book. It's called A Socialist Defector from Harvard to Karl Marx Ali, which is Karl Marx Street. I met with him in the eastern section of Berlin after there was no longer East Berlin and West Berlin. If we're working to build an anti-racist, anti-imperialist revolutionary movement in Germany, my view is that the GDR was part of the anti-imperialist solution and West Germany was part of the pro-imperialist problem. So now let's get to some specifics. If you notice about my work, I just realized in all these things, I had to read that book, The Kaiser's Holocaust. I read And it's terrifying because there's a great introduction in that book about the whole idea of space and land and the concept that the German people were constrained. They constantly needed more land. So the first thing they did is they went after the Slavs and they disrespected them. And the view was simply come in, steal their land, take it over, And that's it. And so you have to have a racial derogatory view of Slavs, right? So you can take over their land and they're not human, according to the white Christians, even though I think they're white Christians. So here's the thing. We need to make a very specific study of the role the German transnationals, the German government, German consumers, and the EU are playing in producing and consuming greenhouse gases that threatening a sixth extinction an ecological genocide in sub-Saharan Africa. The demand for the most radical reductions in greenhouse gases is critical. I do not accept China and India's arguments that they have a special right to generate greenhouse gases. I do not. But I do believe that the U.S. and Germany, who have built their economies on global warming and colonial conquest, must be held to the most radical and immediate reductions. The United States were calling on our government to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% of 1990 levels by 2025. We urge at least that much in Germany, but also the most meticulous assessment of how nations are calculating and measuring their emissions and what mechanisms can be built to enforce those cuts. There also must be climate reparations in the form of loss and damages to nations of Africa in particular. At the Strategy Center, we're looking to the United Nations Green Climate Fund as one recipient of those reparations. I urge German comrades to have very specific plan 
to both demand and distribute climate reparations from Germany to the third world. So now we're getting into demand development. You can call me now at 818-985-5735 if you want to participate in this conversation. So what am I trying to do now as an organizer? I'm going to move away from my article a little bit. I'm telling the people in Germany, for instance, you have to stop giving aid to Israel because you feel so guilty, of course, what you did to the Jews, but then you think Israel is the Jews. Even though it is the Jewish state in Israel, which is not the Jews, as a specific political form, is carrying out genocide against the Palestinians now, sadly. So if you're an anti-fascist in Germany, you should call for the end of German aid to Israel, and Germany should give money to the Palestinians. If you're in the U.S., the same demand, cut off all military and other economic aid to Israel and free the Palestinians, lift the blockade, and bring human rights money and support to the people of Palestine. Now, I'm going to end with a story because it's an interesting story. I went with Barbara Lanholland, Cheney Martinez, Manuel Criollo, and Ashley Franklin. We went to you know, the Paris Conference of 2015 called the United Nations Framework Climate Change Conference. And before that, I went to Bonn, Germany. And all these white environs were there. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about, a thousand. It's not to say, oh, let's say it was 90% white from, you know, every single European country. And they were radical, radical anti-corporatists and radical, you know, no greenhouse gases. And, you know, these were people doing some very important struggles, but they were not supporting reparations for the Africans. They were not wanting to look at the colonial past and present of their own nation states. And it's funny because I'm pretty good at standing up against crowds, but I was in a meeting of 50 white Europeans and one African, and I kept saying we need to do more on tracing German reparations directly to the impact on Africa, to give reparations to the people of Africa. And it went over like a lead balloon. It was like such hostility to me. And my efforts to challenge the Germans, the French, the Belgians, the Basque people, over the issue of the treatment of the colonies was met with the most phenomenal hostility. And I had to admit, I was shaken up. It was like a white mob. It was. These are people who are so angry about pollution, so angry about, if I said I'm against German corporation, I'm against Mercedes-Benz, if I'm against all the large, you know, Shell and Chevron and everything, but to say I want to take on Germany itself and want to take on the U.S. itself, even Obama, they were not interested. But what was interesting to me is I felt frightened in that room. They didn't just ignore me. They were icing me. At the end of the meeting, one more thing, I'm watching the time. I see we have three callers, Dr. Bill, John, and Bill, and we're going to get you all wrong right this second. They were saying things like, because the Africans can't come to Paris, what if we all march with a picture of an African? And I said, God, no, don't march with a picture of an African. Pay for some Africans to come. And then one woman actually said to me, knowing my politics, and I said, well, the good thing is I'm going to come back with more people from South Central, Black and Latina. And the woman, white woman, actually said to me, the best way you could help the climate movement was not to come because look of all the greenhouse gases you could save by not using an airplane. Well, she definitely did not want the strategy center to be there. Okay, let's hear it for Dr. Bill in downtown LA and then John in Sun Valley and Bill yeah. in Lake Elsinore. Hey, Dr. Bill. Oh, yeah, how do you do? Good. I, I wanted to make a brief comment, I guess, uh, Along the, I'm sorry, my head together here. <laughs> I want to say that I think there's no question in my mind that for many years Israel has manifested fascist, uh, fascistic policies, 
And I guess I want to add to that that I'm a holistic, among other things, I'm a holistic practitioner and a psychotherapist. And in transactional analysis with game theory, they talk about how it's very common that how there will be a perpetrator and a victim, and then later on, when the tables turn, the victim will become just as much a perpetrator as the original perpetrator was. It's very common. And Israel, I think, is like, like, like the perfect example of that against the Palestinians. Well, thanks. And I, I thanks, Dr. Bill. And I think, but you still missed a little bit. You went right to Israel, and you weren't enough engaging. And I'm going to go to the next call, but I just want to take you seriously. I agree with you, but the problem is more deep. I'm trying to say that West Germany, after World War II, was part of the rehabilitation of the fascists. Where did all those fascists go? They took over the government of West Germany. They were rehabilitated by the United States. And then, where did right-wing Jews go? They went to Israel. Where did the left-wing Jews go? A lot of them went to East Germany. A lot of them did not support the Israeli project. Others did go to Israel and then were very disillusioned by the treatment of the Palestinians. But this is not about Israel. This is about Germany. So please, when you call in, try to listen to at least acknowledge. I just read your whole story about Germany's role. This is not primarily about Israel's treatment of Palestine. It's primarily about the Germans' conciliation with Israel and them perpetuating their crimes against going from the Jews to the Africans to now the Palestinians. Bill and like Elsinore. How are you doing? Oh, this is, I'm doing sort of well. Um, yeah, that goes a long way. But do you think some of the um, the German bloodlines, for lack of a better term, exist somewhere there in Israel? And well, my personal story is having a strong Slavic name growing up here in Los Angeles, I was outcasted by the waspy community, and they called me a commo and all that, and, and uh, just me. And then the Jews took me, uh, accepted me, but they found out I was a uh, Slavic Russian, and they didn't they want nothing to do with after that. <laughs> just wanted to let you know. So, thanks, well, Eric. It's a great topic. Well, thanks. I mean, I'm going to have to let you go because of the thing, but... Yeah, I mean, the whole issue of Slavs is a whole other question. There's so much I want to study about and learn about because the Slavic people, you know, uh, were very oppressed by the, the Germans who moved into Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. And uh, that's a whole other subject, an area of which I don't know. Hey, Nancy and Brentwood, what's on your mind? First, I want to say that on the left today, particularly in this country, but it sounds like it's the same in Europe, there's a lack of internationalism. It's, everything is just one self. You've got to be interested in one thing. There's no sense of interconnecting things. And by the way, I want to tell you, I just read Victor Grossman's latest article in the monthly uh, MR online, which I read quite a bit, and he just got his vaccine for uh, COVID-19. So there's excitement finally going on in Latin America. Because the, the new government, which uh, the mobs came back, was sort of like the revolution would not be televised all over again in Bolivia. And uh, the new vice president uh, went online, or actually it's in his Facebook, supporting the Palestinians and their, their struggle. And he was wearing a kafita around his shoulders. It's really neat. So, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, things are starting up, but we've got to fight. We've got to do something about, you know, we've got to decolonize the people in this country. It's, it's going to be such a hard fight, and thank you for your program. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, let's go back to Germany for a minute, folks. There's a point here, which is if we're trying to understand why 74 million people voted for Donald Trump, the roots between the Germans and the United States whites, the so-called founding fathers, where they both had a theory of being a master race, as did the Spanish, as did the Portuguese, the role of Christianity, the role of whiteness, the role of perceiving the world as populated by people that were simply pre-German or pre-Portuguese or, you know, I mean, they were just there taking up the space until these um, chosen people of, of their God were going to come to annihilate them. Very sadly, yes, it is how the Jews viewed Palestine. 
You know, when I was growing up, I still like going to Jewish services. So I see Dean in Fullerton, I'll get you in a minute. And I was at synagogue, and I really was enjoying it. I would go every Saturday for the services, and then I always remember the pickled herring and challah because I seemed to like food a lot. And they said, we should all plant a tree in Israel. I said, that sounded great. They said, it's a desert, but we're going to make it beautiful. And then they said, the good thing is, you know, Israel was a land without a people, and we were a people without land. And I thought for a minute, I'm 13, just about to be bar mitzvah, and I'm going, boy, that was great. You know, Hitler attacked us, and then we ran, and then there was a sort of vacant lot called somewhere, and then we Jews were lucky to get Israel. And then somebody else said, but anyway, the Palestinians, they're Arabs, and why doesn't anybody take them? Because they've had it for 2,000 years, and they did such a bad job with it. And I said, wait, I thought you said I was a land without a people. So you're saying that Israel was built on a country called Palestine, and there were already Palestinians in Palestine? And I'm going, oh, my God, no. This is making no sense, or sadly, it is making sense. It's the same thing, same thing. How could you take Palestine from the Palestinians and say you're going to do a better job? And also, of course, the Nakba was driving them out, driving almost a million Palestinians out of Palestine. Well, folks, that's what you're on Voices from the Front Lines to talk about, as Nancy said, building an anti-imperialist resistance. Dean from Fullerton. Thank you for being on Voices from the Front Lines. This is Eric Mann. Hi, Eric. My name is Dean Hawes. I was moved to call. I was born in 1959. My grandmother and grandfather were the Hawses of Sixtelberg, Germany. We have lived there, and my family is still there, Sixtelberg, Germany, right outside in Bavaria for 630 years. My grandmother and grandfather escaped Nazi Germany or I would not have been born. In 1966, my grandfather told me, you watch, it's going to happen here. So I wanted to call in with a personal testimony as a German who absolutely abhors fascism, and I would like to remind the audience listening of Bach and Beethoven and Handel and of people all created from one blood by God, and there is no racism. We're all created from one blood, and we're divided into different nations, and we should celebrate our different music and clothing and dance and music. And this is, I'm thinking, like about a 500 years ago. God bless and protect everyone. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. Obviously, I don't agree with that. I certainly appreciate that your family fled fascism. I don't know. I appreciate Bach and Beethoven and Hanzo. I do, I think. But we go back to the conclusion, folks, that up until the 1500s, the, the Asian people were in Asia and the Europeans were in Europe and the, you know, the indigenous people, every single part of the world was already taken. And from the emigration from Africa thousands of years ago. Different civilizations developed. They, in fact, developed shockingly similar at a similar time. That's to say seven different cultures, major cultures all over the world, without knowing the others existed, went through very similar stages of agricultural development, discovery of creating steel, creating other metals, metalwork, different technologies that would allow the expansion of populations. They all developed interesting societies at a relatively even level, you could say. 
but one society, and they also had wars with each other and took each other over, but one society, European white Christians, became the first society that was basically built on the concept of genocide. They brought this to the United States. They carried out a genocide. And the so-called white founding fathers of the United States are not just the product of that genocide in the positive sense of their benefit, but the advocates of it. If you see the Monroe Doctrine in about 1806, I'll figure out exactly when it was, said that all of Latin America is ours too. When they later said they wanted the open-door policy in China, the United States was saying, we want in on China. So let's be very clear. The United States was formed as an oppressor nation. It was formed as a nation of white people to colonize the world. And with 800 military bases all over the world, it's succeeded beyond its wildest dreams. Right now, our greatest hope is Russia and China, Iraq, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and any country that just wants to live and breathe and stand up to the United States. Hey, this is Eric Mann. You've been on Voices from the Front Lines, 818-985-5735. Write to me at info at the Strategy Center. Write to me at Eric at Voices from the Front Lines. Thanks for listening. Next week is going to be a fund drive, and we're going to raise some serious money for KPFK. Thanks to everybody. Thank you, Achille. Just thanks, everybody. Take care of yourself. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption.